Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Autry. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating, preferably five stars, at Apple Podcasts, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter via Patreon, for which you will receive my undying gratitude. You'll also get early access to episodes. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu. Today, I'm continuing a series of letters that homesteader Eleanor Rupert Stewart wrote to her former employer, Juliet Coney. This episode has two short letters. The first is dated November 1912. Stewart doesn't mention in this letter, or any other, that in June she relinquished her homestead. Her widowed mother-in-law, Ruth Stewart, claimed it immediately afterwards. We don't know why Eleanor relinquished her claim, since she doesn't mention it, but the law stated that a woman who filed on a homestead and subsequently got married, which Eleanor did shortly after filing for her homestead, could keep her land as long as her husband didn't also have an unperfected homestead filing. But Clyde Stewart already had the title to his homestead, so the relinquishment wasn't required on that basis. But if they were living as man and wife on Clyde's property, she couldn't exactly claim her homestead as her residence. Sherry Smith, while assistant history professor at the University of Texas, El Paso, pointed out that if Ruth Stewart claimed the homestead, they could keep the land in the family and not have to worry about any legal problems that could arise because of Eleanor's residency. It begs the question, what else did Eleanor leave out? What, if anything, did Eleanor embellish? Smith calls the characters in Eleanor's letters semi-fictional. A 1933 obituary calls the collection of letters a work of fiction. But the Wyoming State Historical Society says, quote, she lived the adventures that she wrote about, end quote. Her second letter definitely doesn't sound like anything that someone would make up. There is a consensus among the many writings about Stuart that the letters of a woman homesteader played an important role in shaping an image of life in the West, especially life for women. I'll go ahead and read those two letters now, the first one of which mentions Kugin, a German pastry. Here goes. November 16, 1912. My dear friend, at last I can write to you as I want to. I'm afraid you think I am going to wait until the bairns are grown up before writing to my friends, but indeed I shall not. I fully intend to gather roses while I may. Since God has given me two blessings, children and friends, I shall enjoy them both as I go along. I must tell you why I have not written as I should have done. All summer long my eyes were so strained and painful that I had to let all reading and writing go. And I have suffered terribly with my back. But now I am able to be about again, do most of my own work, and my eyes are much better. So now I shall not treat you so badly again. If you could only know how kind everyone is to me, you would know that even ill health has its compensations out here. Dear Mrs. Louderer with her goose grease, 
her bread, and her delicious Coogans. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy, with her cheery ways, her tireless friendship, and willing, capable hands, Gavotte even, with his tidbits of game and fish. Dear little Corabel came often to see me, sometimes bringing me a little of Grandpa's latest cure, which I received on faith, for, of course, I could not really swallow any of them. Zebby's nephew, Parker Carter, came out, spent the summer with him, and they have now gone back to Yale County, leaving Gavotte in charge again. Gavotte had a most interesting and prosperous summer. He was commissioned by a wealthy Easterner to procure some fossils. I had had such a confined summer that Clyde took me out to Gavotte's camp as soon as I was able to sit up and be driven. We found him away over in the Badlands, camped in a fine little grove. He is a charming man to visit at any time, and we found him in a particularly happy mood. He had just begun to quarry a gigantic find. He had piles of specimens. He had packed and shipped some rare specimens of fossil plants, and but his big find came later and he was jubilant. To dig fossils successfully requires great care and knowledge, but it is a work in which Gavotte excels. He is a splendid cook. I almost believe he could make a Johnny Reb-like codfish, and that night we had a delicious supper and all the time listening to a learned discourse about prehistoric things. I enjoyed the meal and I enjoyed the talk, but I could not sleep peacefully for being chased in my dreams by pterodactyls, dinosaurs, and iguanodons, besides a great many horrible creatures whose names I have forgotten. Of course, when the ground begins to freeze and snow comes, fossil mining is done for until summer comes, so Gavotte tends the critters and traps this winter. I shall not get to go to the mountains this winter. The babies are too small, but there is always some happy and interesting thing happening, and I shall have two pleasures each time, my own enjoyment and getting to tell you of them. The next letter has some early 20th century slang that I had to look up. Sparking is courting. Of all the definitions of piker that I found, the one that fits best here is a person who backs out of a promise. Becky Sharp is the social climbing anti-heroine in the William Thackeray novel, Vanity Fair. Eleanor also mentions erysipelas, a bacterial skin infection. December 2nd, 1912. Dear Mrs. Coney, Every time I get a new letter from you, I get a new inspiration, and I'm always glad to hear from you. I have often wished I might tell you all about my Clyde, but have not because of two things. One is, I could not even begin without telling you what a good man he is, and I didn't want you to think I could do nothing but brag. The other reason is the haste I married in. I'm ashamed of that. I'm afraid you will think me a Becky Sharp of a person. But although I married in haste, I have no cause to repent. That is very fortunate because I have never had one bit of leisure to repent in. So I am lucky all around. The engagement was powerfully short, because both agreed that the trend of events and ranch work seemed to require that we be married first and do our sparking afterward. You see, we had to chink in the wedding between times, that is, between planting the oats and other work that must be done early or not at all. 
In Wyoming, ranchers can scarcely take time even to be married in the springtime. That having been settled, the license was sent for by mail, and as soon as it came, Mr. Stewart saddled Chubb and went down to the house of Mr. Pearson, the Justice of the Peace and a friend of long standing. I had never met any of the family, and naturally rather dreaded to have them come, but Mr. Stewart was firm in wanting to be married at home, so he told Mr. Pearson he wanted him and his family to come up the following Wednesday and serve papers on the woman and the host. They were astonished, of course, but being such good friends, they promised him all the assistance they could render. They are quite the dearest, most interesting family. I have since learned to love them as my own. Well, there was no time to make wedding clothes, so I had to do up what I did have. Isn't it queer how sometimes, do what you can, work will keep getting in the way until you can't get anything done? That is how it was with me those days before the wedding. So much so that when Wednesday dawned, everything was topsy-turvy and I had a very strong desire to run away. But I always did hate a piker, so I stood pat. Well, I had most of the dinner cooked, but it kept me hustling to get the house into anything like decent order before the old dog barked, and I knew my moments of liberty were limited. It was blowing a perfect hurricane and snowing like midwinter. I had bought a beautiful pair of shoes to wear on that day, but my vanity had squeezed my feet a little. So, while I was so busy at work, I had kept on a worn old pair, intending to put on the new ones later. But when the Pearsons drove up, all I thought about was getting them into the house where there was a fire. So I forgot all about the old shoes and the apron I wore. I had only been here six weeks then, and was a stranger. That is why I had no one to help me, and I was so confused and hurried. As soon as the newcomers were warm, Mr. Stewart told me I had better come over by him and stand up. It was a large room I had to cross, and how I did it before all those strange eyes I never knew. All I can remember very distinctly is hearing Mr. Stewart saying, I will, and myself chiming in that I would too. Happening to glance down, I saw that I had forgotten to take off my apron or my old shoes. But just then, Mr. Pearson pronounced us man and wife, and as I had dinner to serve right away, I had no time to worry over my odd toilet. Anyway, the shoes were comfortable and the apron white, so I suppose it could have been worse. And I don't think it has ever made any difference with the Pearsons, for I number them all among my most esteemed friends. It is customary here for newlyweds to give a dance and supper at the hall, but as I was a stranger, I preferred not to, and so it was a long time before I became acquainted with all my neighbors. I had not thought I should ever marry again. Jereen was always such a dear little pal, and I wanted to just knock about footloose and free to see life as a gypsy sees it. I had planned to see the cliff dwellers home, to live right there until I caught the spirit of the surroundings enough to live over their lives, in imagination anyway. I had planned to see the old missions and to go to Alaska, to hunt in Canada. I even dreamed of Honolulu. Life stretched out before me one long happy jaunt. I aimed to see all the world I could, but to travel unknown bypaths to do it. But first I wanted to try homesteading. But for my having the grip, I should never have come to Wyoming. Mrs. Cerise, 
who was a nurse at the institution for nurses in Denver while I was a housekeeper there, had worked one summer at Saratoga, Wyoming. It was she who told me of the pine forests. I had never seen a pine until I came to Colorado, so the idea of a home among the pines fascinated me. At that time, I was hoping to pass the civil service examination, with no very definite ideas as to what I would do, but just to be improving my time and opportunity. I never went to a public school a day in my life. In my childhood days, there was no such thing in the Indian Territory part of, of Oklahoma where we lived. So I have had to try hard to keep learning. Before the time came for the examination, I was so discouraged because of the grip that nothing but the mountains, the pines, and the clean, fresh air seemed worthwhile. So it all came about just as I have written you. You see, I was very deceitful. Do you remember I wrote to you of a little baby boy dying? That was my own little Jamie, our first little son. For a long time, my heart was crushed. He was such a sweet, beautiful boy. I wanted him so much. He died of erysipelas. I held him in my arms till the last agony was over. Then I dressed the beautiful little boy for the grave. Clyde is a carpenter, so I wanted him to make the little coffin. He did it, every bit, and I lined and padded it, trimmed and covered it. Not that we couldn't afford to buy one, or that our neighbors were not all that was kind and willing, but because it was a sad pleasure to do everything for our little firstborn ourselves. As there had been no physician to help, so there was no minister to comfort, and I could not bear to let our baby leave the world without leaving any message to a community that sadly needed it. His little message to us had been love, so I selected a chapter from John, and we had a funeral service, at which all our neighbors for thirty miles around were present. So you see, our union is sealed by love and welded by a great sorrow. Little Jamie was the first little Stuart. God has given me two more precious little sons. The old sorrow is not so keen now. I can bear to tell you about it, but I never could before. When you think of me, you must think of me as one who is truly happy. It is true, I want a great many things I haven't got, but I don't want them enough to be discontented and not enjoy the many blessings that are mine. I have my home among the Blue Mountains, my healthy, well-formed children, my clean, honest husband, my kind, gentle milk cows, my garden, which I make myself. I have loads and loads of flowers, which I tend myself. There are lots of chickens, turkeys, and pigs, which are my own special care. I have some slow, old, gentle horses and an old wagon. I can load up the kitties and go where I please any time. I have the best, kindest neighbors, and I have my dear absent friends. Do you wonder I am so happy? When I think of it all, I wonder how I can crowd all my joy into one short life. I don't want you to think for one moment that you are bothering me when I write you. It is a real pleasure to do so. You're always so good to let me tell you everything. I am only afraid of trying your patience too far. Even in this long letter, I can't tell you all I want to, 
So I shall write you again soon. Jereen will write too. Just now she has very sore fingers. She has been picking gooseberries and they have been pretty severe on her little brown paws. With much love to you, I am honest and truly yours, Eleanor Rupert Stewart. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu to visit the American Epistles Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.